On this episode of Blue 58, the Packers are making moves in the wake of their Week 1 win over the Chicago Bears. We'll tell you what we think of their new additions. Then, after a truly mind-boggling revelation from Pro Football Focus, we'll give the details on our own advanced stats. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very excited to be with you here for episode number 101. Already on to the next 100 podcasts or so. Very excited to be with you here. Got a lot of good stuff to talk about, starting with some breaking news from this afternoon as we record on Tuesday evening. The Packers are making moves. We talked about this online. I'm not sure if I mentioned it in the podcast, but I do expect Brian Gutekunst to be a little bit more willing to make moves in season than his predecessor was. Uh, he said that he thought things got a little bit stale on the roster sometimes, and one thing, one way to keep things from getting stale is to churn your roster a little bit on the bottom end. Always have those guys that are 45 to 53, 35 to 53 competing for their roster spot because chances are there's a guy who may fit just as well as you do who's out on the street waiting to get in. You might as well have a little bit of competition going on. You can go overboard with that, but it's good to have guys constantly earning their spots. It's a little bit of NFL Darwinism, but that's the way things go in professional sports. So I guess we don't have to apologize for that. First one out the door, though, is Trevor Davis. Uh, And I say out the door because I do not expect him to stay on injured reserve. The Packers put him on IR, I think, just in advance of an injury settlement. He will be waived from injured reserve here at some point in the relatively not-too-distant future. Because if not now, when? If the Packers weren't convinced that Trevor Davis was some kind of answer on offense or special teams even, they would have waited around for him to get better. Why wait around at this point? You you know what you know about Trevor Davis. Either you think he can contribute or he can't. I think we know what the conclusion is here at this point. The Packers don't think he can contribute, so they're, they're probably going to move on. But taking his place on the active roster is cornerback Deontay Burton. Big guy, six feet, two inches tall, 205 pounds. Big, I say, for a corner, of course. This guy is a very, very good athlete, and that's because he's a former wide receiver. He played wide receiver at Kansas State, kind of taking the reverse Jordy Nelson path to the NFL. Nelson started at defensive back at Kansas State, switched to receiver eventually, then played in the NFL as a wide receiver. Burton was a receiver at Kansas State, a pretty, pretty decent one at that, but switched to cornerback in the NFL, spent his first season with the Atlanta Falcons on their practice squad. Now that he has been waived, the Packers pick him up on waivers, as it so happens. Uh, Again, a very good athlete here. Um, He could, though, just be holding a spot for Will Redmond, another guy the Packers picked up this week, a third-round pick formerly of the San Francisco 49ers and Kansas City Chiefs. He was released not long ago, now added to the practice squad uh, of the Packers. Um, Described by scouts as a potential elite prospect leading up to the 2016 NFL draft, uh, but a little bit of a question mark too, because he's got some injury issues in his background. Um, Reading from his NFL.com scouting report heading up to the draft, uh, they say his strengths plus athleticism for the position, plays with desired twitch and foot quickness, yada, yada, yada. But he does just have average size for the perimeter. And, quoting now, an ACL tear in 2015 puts 2016 in limbo. That's more or less what happened. Uh, was a bit of a question mark in 2016. And now 
after 2017, he is in Green Bay on the practice squad. It seems like there's a lot to like about Will Redmond, but still just a little bit, well, not quite two full years, not quite three full years, I guess, removed from his ACL injury. You're still kind of figuring out what you have him in him. At least that's what it seems like so far. It seems like he's probably worth a look. Evaluators were pretty high on him uh, way back in his college career. As early as 2013 or so, people were making a little bit of noise about Will Redmond. So probably worth worth having around. And again, it speaks to that philosophy of churning the roster a little bit just to see what you can turn up. It never hurts to have a look at a guy in person. And as we know, NFL teams miss on guys all the time. It just happens. Guys slip through the cracks. Evaluating players is an inexact science at best. And uh, we are seeing that again and again and again throughout the league. So might as well bring them in, have a look, see what you can find. But unfortunately, to clear up a spot on the practice squad for Will Redmond, the Packers have released Marwin Evans, a guy that I have always kind of liked. He's a little bit like Marwin, or not Marwin, well, of course he's like Marwin Evans. He's a little bit like Ken Trell Bryce. They came in in the same undrafted free agent draft class, a pretty good athlete, but a little bit more size than Kentrell Bryce. Unfortunately, unlike Bryce, he never really seems to have figured it out on defense. He was really almost exclusively a special teams player for the duration of his time in Green Bay, and now that time has come to an end. Bummer, but things happen. Time to move on, I guess. Uh, Before we dive into our main topic for today, our advanced stats, air quotes, I don't know if you can hear the air quotes in my voice, but uh, before we do that, I want to talk just for a second about a couple things that we haven't gotten to from the Packers game on Sunday. Uh, hopefully we've gotten over the comeback by now. Very, very exciting, but a lot of interesting other stuff to take a look at that you may want to watch as we go throughout the remainder of the season. Just going to buzz through the game in chronological order, uh, talking about a, a couple things that I observed. Um, Packers' first punt, they had Jair Alexander and Ty Montgomery both covering on the punts. Uh, Alexander for sure was a gunner. I didn't quite see where Montgomery lined up, but that's worth worth uh, worth tracking because a lot of Montgomery's value to the Packers this year is going to be on special teams, as is Alexander's, because uh, they, they've now moved on from both of their gunners from last year, Jeff Janis and Trevor Davis. They're going to need more people to fill in that role. Geronimo Allison also played a little bit on the punt cover team later. Uh, on the Bears' first drive, a couple things we're talking about there. The very first play of the game for the Bears, they lined up in a T formation with a fullback, and Jordan Howard and Terry Cohen uh, behind uh, Mitch Trubisky. Uh, You could call it an inverted wishbone if you want, uh, a T formation, whatever. Uh, Matt Nagy actually talked about this after the game, said it was kind of a nod to the franchise's history. If you dig deep deep into Bears history, they were a big wing T team. Uh, This is kind of just a nod to that. The funny thing about this was that Al Michaels seemed almost completely befuddled by this, as though this is, was something that he had never seen before. Really, though, it's not that uncommon. If you watch college football at all, you'll probably see some variation of this in 15 games a weekend. Uh, football is cyclical. Things repeat all the time. Uh, if you are seeing a version of an offense now, it's probably just a revamped version of something we've seen in the past. Even the wacky spread offenses and stuff like that are just tweaked versions of the West Coast offense. Um, 
everything has roots running decades, and that was just uh, just another one. It was a little bit surprising to hear Al Michaels talk about that a little bit. Uh, I thought on balance Kevin King had a pretty decent game overall, but there were a couple times where he got beat pretty badly. And one of those happened on the first drive of the game. Taylor Gabriel uh, shook Kevin King pretty bad. And honestly, that's probably not a super great matchup for Kevin King, the six foot three inch king on the five foot whatever inch. Taylor Gabriel, uh, totally different play styles there. And King got totally turned around on the second, third first down play of the game. Uh, moving on to the Bears' second drive, Kevin King also very nearly gave up a touchdown. Uh, got beaten badly in the end zone. There was just a bad throw that Mitch Trubisky threw pretty much out of the end zone that could have resulted in a touchdown there. Um, But that's just the way things go. Sometimes a a miss goes in your favor. Uh, Still on the Bears' side of things, they they punt uh, just into the second quarter. And who's back returning the punt? It's Randall Cobb, which was interesting to see. Randall Cobb was probably the best punt returner other than Micah Hyde that the Packers have had in, in over the last 15 years or so, uh, since about 2003 or four, when they went away from the Alan Rossum, um, Roel Preston sort of pairing. Other than Micah Hyde, the best one the Packers have had has been Randall Cobb. And uh, he had one nice return and was sure-handed on the other returns. In fact, this first one was his best one, had a 17-yard return that was pretty good. Um, It was interesting to see later in the second quarter that the Packers haven't gotten rid of the Richard Rodgers special. That's the two-yard out to a tight end. Uh, Jimmy Graham had his second catch of the game on a play that looked very, very familiar, and the result was very, very familiar. The Packers ran it on second and 10, and uh, it brought up a third and nine. So super, super exciting there. Um, We saw a lot of the NBC special behind-the-play camera, the Madden-style camera, Last season, I wasn't sure how I felt about this. I think I'm decidedly against it. It makes me feel dizzy. It's disorienting. And it, I don't like it because you can't see the full formation, exactly how motion is working and things like that. I like to be able to see those things. I realize watching from the side is not necessarily the most natural way of watching a football game either. But at least the camera is steady and it doesn't give me motion sickness, which is weird because I don't typically get motion sickness from something like that. Um, I play a couple first-person video games, and I never have issues with it there. A lot of rapid camera movements and stuff like that. But there's just something weird, and maybe it's the floaty sort of nature of that behind-the-play camera or that spider camera, whatever they call that. Uh, We talked about Chris Collinsworth saying even Bears fans hate to see that when Aaron Rodgers got carted off being a load of crap. Uh, It still is, um, so we won't spend any more time on that. Uh, second half, second half. Ah, first Bears drive of the second half was was really, really interesting for a couple couple reasons. First, um, had it not been for the unfortunate decision late in the game by Clay Matthews, this may have been his single worst drive of the game uh, because he had a really bad miss in the backfield uh, and a couple other bad plays on this drive. But on the very first play of the drive, Matthews ended up shifted outside covering the widest receiver on the field. If you were watching it on TV at this point, he would have been on the very bottom of your screen. That was, I thought, interesting and something that could uh, speak a little bit towards how Matthews may be used this year. It'll be interesting to see what Mike Pettin does. There were a couple other times when he was moved around a little bit into more of an off-the-ball linebacker sort of role, something worth watching as we go throughout the season. At the very end of the 
Bears drive here. They had a first and 10 from just outside the red zone. And to me, this is when things kind of went off the rails for the Bears. Uh, they're leading 17 to nothing, have a chance really, because they're moving the ball pretty well to go up 24 to nothing. But they kind of bogged themselves down here. Um, they ran their first and 10 play out of this weird pistol formation, where it started with Trubisky in the pitch, uh, pistol, Tariq Cohen right behind him, and Jordan Howard to his right. But then Trubisky motions out of the backfield towards the left. Tariq Cohen steps up to take the direct snap, and then they kind of try to run this little option thing. It doesn't really go anywhere, and the Bears are facing a second and 10. Then Martinez makes a good open field tackle on second and 10, so that one's kind of a draw. The Bears might have had a good play there, but Martinez just made a good play as well. But then on third and 10, the Bears give up an unblocked pressure. Trubisky is under duress right away, and he more or less has to throw the ball away. It was kind of, if he threw it to somebody, it wasn't a really great effort. The Bears end up kicking a field goal. It's 20 to nothing, but that ends up, obviously, as we know, not being enough. So interesting and odd sequence there from the Bears. Uh, Moving later into the game, you know the story from there. The Bears fall apart. The Packers come back. Um, Right on the second, well, it would have been the second to last play of the game. The, The Packers are lining up trying to run out the clock on second and 10. Aaron Rodgers is frantically trying to get, well, maybe not frantically, but trying to get Jimmy Graham's attention, yelling at him, Jimmy, come line up over here. As he lined up on the left side, he was trying to get him to motion over to the right. The Packers ended up having a play clock violation on that play. Ended up not being a factor. I just thought that was interesting. Today, I don't know if you're paying attention to our Twitter feed, but there was an interesting, well, interesting may not be the word for it. Uh, Pro Football Focus does their their grades after and during every game. And uh, we've talked about not being fans of Pro Football Focus in the past. Uh, I think their system is flawed. I think the fact that they grade down to a decimal point is stupid. And I think they may misdirect people as often as they inform them. But what really bothers me sometimes is that they don't let what is really obvious on the field have any sort of role in their grading at all. I've read the articles about how systematic they are and what they do to grade players and things like that. And I get it, but it's still wrong. It's like when a teacher in grade school or high school asks you to show your work. Showing your work doesn't make the conclusion you come to correct. It just allows people to see where you went wrong. I don't know if the evaluation process for pro football focus itself has a flaw, but they graded Aaron Rodgers at a 64.2 for his effort on Sunday, which in their system rates as backup quality. Now I understand that he did not have a great first half. And I understand that there was a play late in the game that could have ended the Packers chances when Kyle Fuller dropped an interception. But if you're going to look at the balance of that game and tell me on the whole, Rodgers' performance was roughly backup quality, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to throw out whatever system you use to come up with that grade out completely. It's just wrong. It's, it's wrong to everybody who, who saw the game. It, he was, that was one of the best performances you're ever going to see from a quarterback. And Aaron Rodgers is one of the only people who could have done it. What, 
what's wrong with your grading system that it rates him that way? Of course, Pro Football Focus may have to explain something like this, and they've done that in the past. If you remember back in 2015, Aaron Rodgers had an utterly phenomenal game against the Kansas City Chiefs. He threw five touchdown passes, but Pro Football Focus gave him, at that time, a roughly equivalent grade to this, but it was a negative grade. Their their grading system has changed a little bit. And they wrote an extensive blog post explaining why. And after every one of their points, you could say, yeah, but he still threw five touchdowns. What more do you want him to do? How much more does he have to do to get a positive grade in your eyes? So, with all that said, I feel like sometimes we need to add our own semi-advanced stats to the mix. These are not advanced numbers in that you have to do, you have to have the degree in math to understand them or calculate them. These are just things that we are going to track this year and uh, because we think they, they help you understand the game as a whole a little bit more. We've talked about two new things that we're going to introduce here um, earlier on the podcast, but we didn't ever follow up with how it exactly it's going to work. And I thought after the, the first game of the preseason, we would talk, or of the, of the season rather, we would talk about it and, and show a little bit more about what the, what the data actually says. And one is one, one we're bringing back from last year. And uh, I think it was useful last year and it will continue to be useful this year, especially as we get to compare eras of play now over the past couple of years. So the three things that we're going to talk about are usage rate, explosive plays, and the ball hawk index. If you remember from our earlier podcast, usage rate is essentially a, a tracking of how many plays out of the offense's total that a particular player uses. So this actually stems from basketball, where teams have a certain amount of possessions per game or end up running a certain amount of possessions per game. And plays either end with somebody taking a shot, somebody going to the free throw line, or somebody committing a turnover. And you can see in a way, how often a guy has the ball in his hands by looking at his usage rate. So Russell Westbrook of the Oklahoma City Thunder always dominates in usage rate uh, because he always has the ball in his hand and he puts up a lot of raw volume numbers as a result. And you can see how effective player a player is by comparing his raw numbers to his usage rate. And I think you can do something pretty similar with football, there are going to be a given number of plays in a game, and a guy is going to end up being the target of a pass. He's going to end up carrying the ball. He's going to throw an interception, or he's going to be sacked. And each of those ways, or a guy, or each of those outcomes, are a way that a particular player can quote unquote use a play. So, what did we learn from week one? Well, the leader in usage rate for the Packers in week one was Jamal Williams. He used just over 28% of the Packers' offensive plays. He had 15 carries and was targeted with passes twice. That seems really, really high to me. It seems like it's a lot higher than you'd like that number to be, particularly when you look at what Jamal Williams gave you with those numbers. He didn't put up a lot in terms of rushing yards and didn't do a whole lot with either of his two two targets. His long carry on the night was just 11 yards, which is good, but certainly not great. Other leaders in usage rate were Randall Cobb at 16.67%. And then um, Devontae Adams and Geronimo Allison at just over 13% apiece. 
This also seems pretty good, and I think if you were going to fix anything with usage rate, you would like to see Jimmy Graham bump his up a little bit. He was targeted four times, which is almost 7% of the Packers' total plays. The Packers ran 60 plays on offense, by the way, uh, in this game. So what do we learn from that? Well, Jamal Williams either has to be used a little bit less or he has to be a little bit more productive with his output. Uh, Both Allison and Adams gave you about as much as they possibly could on their 13% of the offense, and we'd like to see a little bit more out of Jimmy Graham. The interesting note to me was uh, Deshaun Kaiser was on the field for like 10 plays, and he ended up using 5% of the total offense because he threw an interception and he was sacked twice. Oh, I should mention, uh, before we, or as we track this throughout the season, we're going to be tracking interceptions thrown, but not fumbles. If you count fumbles, and carries, you end up counting carries twice. But interceptions are passes that do not get categorized as having targets. So that's the reason that you have to calculate interceptions in there and not fumbles. So we'll track this as the season goes on. I think you'll be able to see some interesting trends as we go throughout the season. One example of how we've learned about this in the past or been able to, to track this in the past or what we've learned from it in the past, rather, is, is with the case of Aaron Jones, what he was doing in terms of volume last season, despite using very little of the Packers' offense. So it'll be interesting to track trends like that, uh, overall output versus how many plays a guy is using on offense. Explosive plays, pretty good so far. Six explosive plays for the Packers on offense. uh, Well, I almost said yesterday, on Sunday. What are explosive plays? For our calculations, they're going to be runs of 10 or more yards and catches of 15 or more yards. I know there are a couple different metrics that uh, guys use throughout the league and track their own stats. Some people use catches of 20 or more yards. 15 just seems like a good number to me. It's kind of arbitrary, sure, but what we're really trying to get at here is guys who are picking up big chunks of yards at a time. And 15 yards to me seems like a pretty good chunk of yards. Um, The only caveat here for explosive plays is uh, you have to if, you're, if it's on any play other than first or second downs or third or fourth down, you have to pick up a first down on your explosive play or it doesn't count. For instance, this past game on third and 19, Aaron Rodgers had a run of 15 yards. Great for you. Great for getting 15 yards. It doesn't matter if that was explosive or not because they didn't pick up a first down. So we're not going to count that for Aaron Rodgers. Randall Cobb had two catches of 15 or more yards. Geronimo Allison did as well. Devontae Adams had just the one, and Jamal Williams had just the one carry uh, of 11 yards. So that's your explosive plays. Finally, the ball hawk index, my personal favorite, because it's interesting to see how guys contribute to this metric a little bit differently. The ball hawk index tracks basically who's around the ball, who's getting their hands on the ball, who is making plays at the ball on your defense. This is uh, important to track uh, because as I told my seventh grade football players in Bloomington, Indiana, they call the game football because the game is about the football. You got to get to the football. If you control the football, uh, you can score with it. If you don't have the football, you're trying to get it back. That's what it's all about. So tracking who's making plays on the ball is very important. Keeping with the trend from last year, Nick Perry led the Packers with ball hawks on Sunday. He had a sack and a fumble forced. Uh, Kentrell Bryce also had a sack and Mike Daniels had a sack. The only person showing up on the ball hawk index this week is Jermaine Whitehead. He had one passed pass defensed. 
Now, the, these numbers are interesting from this particular game because it shows you the Packers weren't getting their hands directly on the ball very much, but they were affecting the ball a little bit. Uh, three sacks is pretty good. They also had a fourth sack that the NFL credited to the team, which is a little bit weird, but whatever. So nobody gets a ball hawk in particular on that one. Uh, but the Packers, no interceptions and just the one pass defense. So they weren't getting their hands on the ball when it was in the air, but still were affecting plays at or near the ball when it happened. Does this all make sense? Do you have questions about it? What other areas would you like to see us track? Let me know. Reach out via Facebook, via Twitter, via email at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. Let us know. While I've got you here, we did something interesting this week. Uh, We released our first ever Patreon bonus content. And thank you to all of you who signed up uh, Monday throughout the day uh, to join our Patreon crew. That's that's great. We're going to start adding some uh, some tools to our toolbox with your very generous contributions here in the near future that should let us do some more content. Um, we haven't, even in 2018, it's surprisingly difficult to get people on the phone and record their phone calls in a, a relatively high quality way. We can do it via Skype, um, but that really only works well, if you're at a, a computer, we are adding some ways uh, to do that, and we are, are are looking to do some more interviews in the future. And your gracious support will will help us with that. But I do want to ask, as we start to do more of this bonus content, what are some sorts of things that you would like to see? What can we give you that makes your experience worthwhile? I know it's it's very generous of you to support us on Patreon or by buying a t-shirt or whatever. But if there is something we can do for you to make that a little bit more worth your while, let us know and we'll see if we can make that happen. I would love to do that for you. I will mention that if you do support us on Patreon, you get 25% discounts on all t-shirts and things like that for life. You will have access to that forever. So that's great. Um, But if you want to support us there, we want to know what what we can do for you to, to help you make that a little bit more worth your while. I do want to mention that you should feel under no obligation to support us there on Patreon either. It's just something that if, if you feel like it, you can do it. Uh, we're very grateful for the people who do. If you choose not to, I don't blame you for that either. That's all I've got for you this this time. I almost said this week. We're doing this more than once a week now, so can't say that anymore. Uh, we do appreciate every bit of feedback that you give us. Never have hesitate to re- never hesitate to reach out, whether that's through thepowersweep.com or via Facebook or Twitter or email at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. Support us, as I said, on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash thepowersweep to do that there. Buy one of our shirts from Teespring. Click the store link at thepowersweep.com. And as always, the freest and easiest way to support the Power Sweep and Blue 58 is by leaving a review on iTunes. It helps more people find the show. We do love to hear from you. Any feedback you give us helps us make this entire operation better and helps all of us become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm John Meerdink. I've been your host. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.